trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're checking us out for the first time, first of all, thank you for taking a chance and dialing us in or clicking play or whatever it is you're doing that uh, has got uh, my voice sounding in your ears. I realize there are a lot of voices out there and uh, you know what? A lot of them have a great, truthful message. I hope you find that uh, that is true with this program as well. Why do I do what I do? Well, I'm glad you asked. It really comes down to something as simple as I believe that there is a very real battle for your mind. And I can't name all of the different uh, you know, parties that are contending to win your allegiance, to win uh, the shaping of your worldview. But I can tell you that the most important one of those parties is you. So my goal is to invite you to come. Listen to commentary and uh, content that deals with the, the current events of the day but does so more focused on principle than on partisan platitudes. In other words, your mind is yours to make up for yourself. I don't insist you agree with everything that I share with you. I just want to present enough information to hopefully give you a better opportunity to, to come to a reasoned and you know informed conclusion. And I think you'll find that uh, in this time where finding the truth can be a little bit difficult, where you have mass media organs whose job is to keep you from getting too close to the truth, keep you a little bit, uh, uh, a little more hemmed up in the uh, narrative that you're supposed to believe, this is really essential. Not only for understanding the world around us, but also to understand just how much power you actually have within your grasp to live your life and claim your rights and your freedoms the way that you should. So come find courage and camaraderie. This is where we engage in wrong think, which simply means we depart from the narratives, we question the mainstream narratives, and do our best to sort out what's really going on. I'm going to leave it to you to decide whether or not we're we're doing this with any accuracy. So let's start with uh, I you know if if you're listening to this show, if you've even checked it out, I think it's probably pretty easy to say there's just no way to sugarcoat. The fact that the political systems around us are working overtime to consolidate their power over us. And I think this is true at every level, not just the federal level. It's right down to the local level. We've seen it with the reaction to COVID. We've seen it with various environmental policies and other things. Have you ever thought about uh, what if our money was something that could be weaponized? Now, this is not to make you fearful. It's not to, to make you angry, but just to consider something that may be worth considering because financially we're not standing on the firmest of ground and the trillions and trillions of dollars being called into existence to send out as various, you know, stimulus measures or sometimes just simply bribes, you know, to keep the the right parties happy. It's having an effect. You see the rising prices, you see the shrinking portions. You may think, oh, well, that's just, you know, the cost of living is going up a little bit. Prices are going up. That must mean inflation. What's happening is every dollar in circulation is losing a corresponding part of its purchasing power as more and more dollars are added to the money supply. 
Well, I found a great commentary from Rob Nielsen. This is on his website, excuse me, livingvoluntary.com. It's called Money as a Geopolitical Weapon. And he starts with a quote from James Madison, which says, History records that the money changers have used every form of abuse, intrigue, deceit, and violent means possible to maintain their control over governments by controlling money and its issuance. I don't know if you've heard, you know, the the quote that's attributed to one of the Rothschilds about, you know, let me uh, control a nation's money and I care not who makes its laws. That seems to be the same kind of principle that's being expressed here by James Madison, albeit uh, much more eloquently and with less, you know, lust for power. Rob Nielsen says, people who seek to rule over and control others learned long ago that controlling money and trade is the best way to do it. On a global level, he says there are open conspiracies among controlling interests that go about doing just that. This is a quote from David Rockefeller. For more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have seized upon well-publicized incidents to attack the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence they claim we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States characterizing my family and me as internationalists and conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I am proud of it. Now, these are from the memoirs of David Rockefeller. So those are his words, not Alex Jones. Rob Nielsen says, they're not content to work hard and increase their influence and reputation through discipline and cooperation. These money powers use every mean possible, every means possible rather, to get and maintain control. And this begins with control of money and banking, but extends into direct and indirect control of governments, armies, industries, schools, news media, entertainment, churches, and more. These globalists are not loyal to regional political systems, but to their own ideologies and ambitions. He says the organization's goals and methods of such conspirators are are too broad to discuss here. So instead, we'll focus on how financial enemies, both foreign and domestic, use money as as a means of conquest and control. And from here, he delves into the power of money. Rob Nielsen writes, People commonly believe that governments control money, but it's the other way around. Money controls governments. Money is more powerful than governments and their armies. Governments and their armies are dependent upon money. They're also powerful tools for granting and maintaining complete dominance of entire financial and economic systems. Here's a quote from Franklin D. Roosevelt in a letter to Colonel House, dated November 21st, 1933. FDR says the real truth of the matter is, as you and I know, that a financial element in the large centers has owned the government ever since the days of Andrew Jackson. Excuse me, from here, Rob Nielsen talks about national financial oppression schemes. And he starts with a quote from Henry Ford, founder of Ford Motor Company. It is well enough that the people of the nation do not understand our banking and money system, for if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. Followed by a quote from the Rothschild Brothers of London, writing to associates in New York back in 1863. Quote, the few who understand the system will either be so interested in its profits or be so dependent upon its favors that there will be no opposition from that class. 
while on the other hand, the great body of people, mentally incapable of comprehending the tremendous advantage that capital derives from the system, will bear its burdens without complaint and perhaps without even suspecting that the system is inimical to their interests. End quote. Rob says the first step toward controlling the world is to control individual nations. And he starts to list some of the ways that financial elites and their, na- their political puppets use money as a weapon on a national level. Now, some examples will refer to specifics from the United States, but he says the same strategies are employed in nations around the world. <clears throat> national scheme number one, monopolized banking and money. And this is the quote I was talking about from, uh, I guess it's Meyer Amschel Rothschild, founding father of international finance. Let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes the laws. Rob says, like the old joke says, what's the best way to rob a bank? Own one. If you can monopolize banking and money creation through centralized banking and and fiat currency or legal tender laws, you can rob an entire national banking system in perpetuity. Once you have control of the whole system, you just sever the link between scarce resources on deposit from creditors and the promises you made to return them. After all, promises can be made and broken in unlimited quantity. Once you circulate fiat currency into existence, simply as an unbacked loan to be paid at interest to private central bankers, you have accepted national slavery. Here he has a quote from Barry Goldwater. Most Americans have no real understanding of the the operation of the international moneylenders. The accounts of the Federal Reserve System have never been audited. It operates outside the control of Congress and manipulates the credit of the United States. Now, I'm going to pause here because we're coming up on the break. And I know this makes people uncomfortable because money is, it's one of those things that is universal in the sense that every one of us needs it, right? We have to supply our day-to-day needs. Few of us really understand it, and I'm including myself in, in that group. There are mysteries. There are things that are very mystical about money that, uh, you know, there are, how many different books are there out there about the secrets of how to make money, how to grow your money, how to protect your money, how to take money from other people? So when we come back, we're going to talk more about the weaponization of money, particularly money as a geopolitical weapon. Rob Nielsen's got a great essay here. Yes, there is a link. You can follow it. It's in the show notes at thebrianheitshow.com. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to the sponsors of the show, including HSLAmmo.com. That's my good friend Spencer Worthington. What a great guy he is. Yes, he understands the ammo shortage as well as anybody, and he's a great guy still. Also, we want to thank uh, Pure Light, that's pure-light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. There are links to all of these in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I am sharing with you a, a, an article here from Rob Nielsen. This is from his website, livingvoluntary.com. Money as a geopolitical weapon. And he's talking about some of the various ways that, that uh, money can be weaponized at either a national or geopolitical level. In the last segment, he talked about monopolized banking and money. 
National scheme number two, he says, is taxation and income redistribution. Rob says mass extortion through taxation of various flavors supports a strong central government that in turn supports centralized financial interests. And along the way, politically favored groups benefit through cronyism, mercantilism, protectionism, and regulatory capture. For example, he says, see the revolving door between the U.S. Treasury and Goldman Sachs and the bailouts of of, uh, theft to benefit financial institutions deemed too big to fail. You do remember that, right? Incidentally, he says, this scheme funds monopolized government schools, which are then used to propagandize entire generations to implicitly trust private central banks and government taxation and debt schemes. National scheme number three, perpetuate national debt. Thomas Jefferson said banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies. And the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity under the name of funding is but swindling futurity on a large scale. Ooh, that one left a mark. By the way, I think it was Jim Quinn who writes on the burningplatform.com who described the incredible racking up of unpayable debt, or at least debt slavery that will be imposed on you and me and our children and our children's children for, for generations yet to come. He refers to that as the largest intergenerational theft in human history. Kind of makes you wonder, why don't more people recognize it as such? I guess the, the fact is a lot of us are in the dark to some degree about what goes on. Back to Rob's article. Rob says, once the people of a nation can be taxed, credit and debt can be created by, repro- by promising repayment from future tax revenues. The modern monetary theory, or MMT, I think I heard someone refer to it as the magical money tree, of combining deficit spending with monetary inflation is just generational wealth transfer through enslavement of future generations. Such debts are never meant to be repaid and are popular among politicians of every political stripe for their use in growing the welfare-slash-warfare state that that itself incentivizes the wealth destruction and civilizational decline. He ends with another quote here from Thomas Jefferson, at least on this section, uh, where Jefferson said, The modern theory of the perpetuation of debt has drenched the earth with blood and crushed its inhabitants under burdens ever accumulating. End quote. National scheme number four. This is one we're about to get a very good object lesson in. Monetary inflation. Here's a quote from James Garfield, U.S. president, assassinated in 1881, six months after taking office. Quote, Whoever controls the volume of money in our country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. End quote. Rob says monetary inflation, meaning printing money out of thin air, causes price inflation. Higher prices for things, but not right away, not all at once, and not evenly across social groups. He says, note in the international section below, you're going to see that some of the effects of inflation can be exported under some circumstances. The people who get the money first can bid goods and services away from other market participants who don't have the benefit of freshly available ex nilho money. As a result, they can buy with the new, what they buy with the new money begins to become more expensive. 
<clears throat> it takes time for the new money to circulate through the market, depreciating and raising prices as it does. This process changes the wealth of different groups in different ways, those who spend the new money first and those who sell them to those who sell to them rather at the new higher prices can use their money to buy other goods at yet unchanged prices. These groups benefit the most. This is where you hear the rich get richer. Well, those who sell goods and services must do so at prices that have not yet risen, but they have to buy at new higher prices. The poor get poorer. Rob says as long as this process continues, wealth is transferred from some social groups like wage earners and net taxpayers to others, politicians and connected financiers. Unsurprisingly, New money is often issued to large banks to prop up stock markets and steer mortgage markets in their favor. Now, he says mon- monetary inflation also begins or ra- also changes, rather, the relationship between creditors and debtors as debts incurred with old money can later be repaid with new depreciated money. As people begin to see that their money is increasingly worth less and less, they avoid saving it. Instead, they use and borrow as much as they can to invest, which drives prices even higher for things like stocks and real estate, something we're seeing right now, and accelerates the price inflation even more. He says, by the way, look at the Weimar Republic in the 1920s as an example. This can make a dangerous bubble or unsustainable high prices, make it look like the economy's booming, but it's just a disastrous setup for a crash, whether by hyperinflation and devaluation or deflationary correction and insolvency. Rob Nielsen says, central banks also manipulate interest rates, which is to say they can increase or decrease the cost of commercial banks borrowing from central banks, which they in turn lend out at higher interest rates to their customers. This is effectively a credit version of printing actual money, given that it directly affects how expensive it is to borrow money from any bank. One sure sign the system is failing is that central banks actually start to lend at negative interest rates. That means they actually pay people for borrowing money and charge people for saving it. These perverse incentives push disciplined savers and those who rely on fixed incomes as well as as drive even more malinvestment. Keep your eyes open because this is happening right under our noses. Okay, national scheme number five, tracking and controlling all trade. Even though most of the U.S. dollars in the financial system already exist as digital credit records rather than paper banknotes, central bankers and their government allies have been talking about the creation of what they call a digital dollar for some time now. CBS, CBCS, that central bank digital currencies, are expected to replace existing currencies around the globe. For this to happen, cash must be banned. Now, the result may seem to have advantages for convenience and hygiene, especially if the public were somehow bombarded by fearful depictions of illness transmitted by physical contact. But banning cash and replacing it with an enhanced surveillance economy would make controlling and maintaining populations even easier. Even though technology makes controlling trade more efficient and effective, he says it's interesting to note that the general idea is not new. There's an ancient biblical apocalyptic vision of monstrous global beasts who exercise power over all kindreds, tongues, and nations in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Now, these beasts will not allow people to buy or sell, that's in verse 17, unless their actions, symbolized by the right hand, and thoughts, symbolized by the forehead, are in line with the agenda of the beasts and the systems they control. 
What could go wrong? Now here we're going to hit the pause button once again because we're coming up on the break, but come on, think about where you are seeing some of this pressure being applied, maybe even outside of the monetary system. Passport vaccine, or vaccine passports rather, yeah, that's that's a real thing. And it's not just a wild-eyed suggestion by some conspiracy theorist. This is being seriously floated. Think about the pressure being brought to bear by stores that require you have to mask up, you have to be vaccinated. Now put that in terms of being able to track every dime you earn, every dime you spend. How easy would it be to apply some pressure through the money that a person is using to live their life? Be pretty easy, wouldn't it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So we're talking money today. It's a subject lots of people love, even though we don't understand it necessarily. But some funny stuff is happening with our money. And I got to tip my hat to Rob Nielsen, who maintains the livingvoluntary.com website. He's got a great article here about money as a geopolitical weapon. We just walked through a list of various national schemes through which uh, the, the, the power of money can be used to control people and institutions. Now let's talk about the international financial oppression schemes. He says individual nations can also be used in cooperation with or against each other to accomplish the goals of globalists. Powerful nations are used as the basis for their financial and military operations. So international scheme number one, control of a world reserve currency. Rob says international banks keep some currency from various countries in reserve so they can facilitate foreign exchanges. The most popular currency in the world at any given time is considered the world reserve currency because it's the one banks keep on hand to facilitate exchange and avoid the risk of other less stable currencies becoming worthless or unavailable. Now, history has seen popular coins come and go. Anciently, the Greek drachma and the Roman denarii were the most valuable coins for foreign trade. Then came the Byzantine solidus and the Arab dinar in Middle Ages. The Renaissance saw the rise of the Venetian Ducato and the Florentine Florin. In the 1600s, the Dutch Gilder and the French Franc became prominent. Unsurprisingly, the popularity of each is connected to political power and overall economic influence. Though these coins were minted and used by different groups, they were just stamped measures of silver and gold. In other words, it was gold and silver that were money all along. Now, Rob says historical world reserve currencies, um, he's got a picture of them here, uh, showing, you know, the the British pound on back to the Greek drachma. And he says the modern concept of a world reserve currency came about in the mid-1800s. That's when central national, national central banks, rather, were introduced along with the national monopolization of money and banking. The United Kingdom dominated the financial world at this time, and most international trade was invoiced in pounds sterling, or what we today refer to simply as the British pound. That's the oldest currency in continuous use and currently the fourth most traded currency in the foreign exchange market. It was called the pound because it was equal to one pound of pure silver. The stylized L symbol for this pound of symbol for, for this pound of silver rather from was from the Latin word Libra meaning balance or scale, visualized as balance scales in the ancient constellation Libra. 
In the 1800s, a gold standard replaced the silver one in Britain, and a world trade agreement caused participating countries rather around the world to back up their currency with gold reserves. Paper notes from the Bank of England were fully backed by gold up until 1931. Near the end of World War II in 1944, 730 delegates from all 44 of the Allied nations gathered for the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference at a hotel resort in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. The agreement signed on the last day of that conference established what we now call the Bretton Woods System. That agreement led to the establishment of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, or IMF, as well as recognizing that the system would rest on the reserves of gold and the the then-gold-backed U.S. dollar, given that the U.S. controlled about two-thirds of the world's gold at that time. Notably, representatives from the USSR attended the conference but refused to ratify the agreement, the agreement, rather, because they considered it just an extension of Wall Street institutions. Now, Rob writes, under the Bretton Woods system, most countries in the world agreed to buy and sell U.S. dollars to each other to keep world trade and exchange rates consistent. The dollar had become the world reserve currency and taken over the role that silver and gold played for decades. Now, in another essay he titled What is Money?, Rob discussed how President Nixon unilaterally terminated convertibility of the U.S. dollar to gold in 1971, effectively ending the Bretton Woods system and severing any direct connection between the U.S. dollar and precious metals. At that point, it became a free-floating fiat currency along with other major currencies around the world. And as a result, the U.S. dollar quickly lost 30% of its purchasing power. However, no other currency has replaced it as the most widely used for settlement of international trades and as a reserve for international banks, due to the political, economic, and military dominance of the U.S. At that, since that time. rather, He says the ability to issue a world reserve currency out of thin air is an exorbitant privilege. It allows central banks to act as the lender of last resort to bail out uh, favored failing governments and banks who've lied and embezzled their way into insolvency. Picking financial winners and losers is a recipe for widespread dissatisfaction among said losers. Increasing dissatisfaction with U.S. dominance of world trade and the financial crises of 2008 and 2020 has led central banks and their political puppets in powerful countries to insist on what they are calling a new Bretton Woods moment, or Bretton Woods II, or Great Reset, to establish a new global financial system. Current U.S. Secretary, or U.S. Treasury Secretary and former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen said just a few weeks ago that this month's IMF and World Bank meetings would be a Bretton Woods moment for the global economy. Now, Rob asks, what will the resulting system look like? Well, calls from various influential figures for a multipolar order with a basket of digital currencies point to likely key features of the system being developed right now. He says there have also been calls for a global minimum corporate tax rate to keep companies from relocating to low-tax countries as the U.S. prepares to increase the corporate tax rate. The details and terms of such a system could be agreed upon through negotiation, but he says, I believe that war with uncooperative or noncompliant countries will ultimately be required to fully decide and settle it all. Now, there are several other international schemes that he covers here, including the control of international exchanges, currency wars and their proxies, and also uh, Scheme 4, which is war as banking and business opportunity. 
I'm going to share this last one, and then I'll let you pick it up from here, and you can you can read it in its entirety. I have a link to this article in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Scheme number four, war as banking and business opportunity. All wars, he says, are bankers' wars. Money funds war, and war is big business. After World War II, President Eisenhower famously warned of the power of the military-industrial complex in his farewell address which is really an extension of the central banking and financial complex. If warring nations borrow money from you to buy weapons from you, you are the real winner of every war. You profit from every angle and use winning forces to assimilate losing ones into centralized international schemes. A cynic might even say you're heavily incentivized to provoke and celebrate conflict in order to make money and grow influence. By the way, he finishes with a quote from a Smedley uh, Butler author of War is a Racket. Butler says, I spent most of my 33 years in the Marine Corps being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for crony capitalism. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. I don't know about you, but if there was ever a time to really get your head around the, the whole manipulation of the monetary system, especially with words like Great Reset out there hanging in the breeze. This might be the time to uh, shore up your understanding. And Rob Nielsen's article is a great place to start. All right, next, I'd like to talk about no matter how good you are at flying, at the, uh, flying under the radar, eventually you are going to run into various mandates regarding masks, vaccine, or maybe COVID tests. Alan Stevo has written a great explanation about how to never be forced into a face mask, a COVID test, a vaccine, or any other public health mandate. And he not only explains how to do it, but he explains why. He says public health mandates have no place in a free society. In fact, the entire public health industry has no place in a free society. From its very roots, public health is a philosophically impoverished set of theories that leaves individuals both less free and less healthy. Now, why would he say something like this? Well, it's probably because health is an individual matter and something that many hold dear. Public health is a manipulatively named term meant to pull at your heartstrings. It is the most vile imposition upon the lives of you and your loved ones couched in the most gentle and manipulative terms. And that alone should tell you enough to distrust anyone pitching you on a public health solution. They've either been fooled or are trying to fool you. He says, either way, anyone pitching a public health mandate does not deserve your trust. And so he says, I encourage people to fight the imposition of public health in their lives. All people. Now, sometimes that requires baby steps. Even the most bold champions out there, all of your favorite heroes, learned their ability with baby steps. So he gets a lot of different requests along the lines of, how can I avoid X public health mandate? And his answer is, there are many ways. But he shares a few methods that have worked extremely well for him, and we will get to those just the other side of these messages. Sorry, this is what we call a cliffhanger. But if you have read anything of Alan Stevo's before, you'll know he not only has given some serious thought to this, but he has some very workable solutions. I'll share those with you just the other side of these commercial messages. Please stay with us.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm, I'm getting stubborn in my old age. And, and one of the, the strongest stubborn streaks I have is I will not be forced. Whether it's forced to wear a mask, whether it's forced to get the inoculation or the vaccine, or, or otherwise forced to, to engage in some kind of a COVID test, I just won't do it. So I avoid things that, that would otherwise require me to. Sometimes that means I shop at different stores that uh, aren't as, uh, shall we say, eager to enforce you know, a face mask mandate. I guess I'm probably done flying for the time being because it sounds like the airlines are now all requiring you know, proof of vaccination. Europe just announced recently that uh, they will not allow any travelers into Europe unless they can show a vaccine passport of sorts or proof that they've been vaccinated. Now, if you feel similarly, I want you to hear some of the suggestions that Alan Stevo has. This is a piece from LewRockwell.com about how to never be forced into a face mask, a vaccine, a COVID test, or any other public health mandate. And he not only explains, you know, uh, why you shouldn't allow it to happen, but also how to avoid it. He says, this is a policy that, or this is a method that works very well. First of all, if there's a public health mandate of some sort, he says, read the policy. Request a copy of the face mask exemption policy, vaccine exemption policy, PCR test exemption policy. Secondly, invoke an exemption. If you fall under the exemption, and millions of Americans do, he says notify them you'll be invoking the exemption by saying, I see you have X activity requirement. I am unable to do X activity safely. What can you do for me to accommodate this need? Now, at a grocery store, it looks like this. I'm coming by at 2 p.m. I see you have a face mask requirement. I'm unable to wear a face mask safely. What can you do for me? At the doctor's office, it looks like this. I'm scheduled for a Wednesday appointment, and I see you have a COVID test requirement. I'm unable to take a COVID test safely. What could you do to accommodate this special need of mine? Now, since there are many variations of COVID tests, it makes sense to first very specifically understand the details of the tests they offer before you identify yourself as being unable to take such a test safely. At work, it looks like this. I see our company has a vaccine requirement. I am unable to take a vaccine safely. What can you do to accommodate this special need of mine? Now, it takes some testicular fortitude to ask these questions, but you need to do it. Then number three, you need to respond to the offer. You respond to the accommodation in the affirmative if it works for you or in the negative if it doesn't work for you. So in the affirmative, it would look like this. Thank you. That works for me. After that, it's helpful to ask clarifying questions of how the process should then go. He says, I like to dig down with detailed questions like when I'm asked by someone at the front door to put on a mask, what should I say? Or more general questions like what should I do when I arrive? These are important as they allow you to have clarity around the process, but they also cause the manager to think through the process and answer those basic questions for himself, making it far more likely that you both end up knowing exactly what to expect when you arrive. In the negative, it looks like this. Thankful, that's uh, helpful to know what other options are there. Or if you want to be more insistent, you could simply say, that does not work for me. What other options are there? Now, if a different medical mandate is proposed that you cannot safely use, you can start this prog- the process again from the beginning. Costco is a good example of this. 
Since Costco's response to a face mask exemption is to put you in a face shield, something that not all people can safely wear, at Costco, that may look like, I'm unable to wear a face shield safely. What can you do for me to accommodate this special need? Now, this is the tough part, because here's what he recommends. You either wear it or don't wear it. During this process, he says, don't put a mask on disobediently simply because you can manage it with you can manage with it drooping around your chin. He says, either wear it or don't wear it. Let your no be no. Let your yes be yes. Sounds familiar, right? If you wear it disobediently or in an undisciplined fashion, you confuse others and you invite them to correct you. If you wear no mask, do so with purpose and do so boldly. Be very clear you are not able to safely wear a mask and that under no circumstances will you be wearing one. This clarity will help provide you with better treatment than the average customer and will make it easier for others to understand that they must take your inability to safely wear a mask as seriously as you do yourself. And this next part's important too. He says, don't explain yourself to anyone. No one at a compliance checkpoint deserves to know what your condition is or what your problem is nor to be able to read and evaluate a doctor's note from you. I am unable to wear a safe mask, or face mask safely, rather, is all I recommend you offer. I am unable to take a vaccine safely. I am unable to take a COVID test safely. Whatever the legitimate concern, he says, stop the conversation there. Don't open the can of worms that inevitably exist when you welcome someone into your private affairs. It's none of their business. Pretty good stuff. Alan Stevo has been a real resource for anybody who wants to avoid, you know, being hobbled or saddled or whatever else it is that is being planned for us. One final note. I know you have been hearing, as I have been hearing, a lot of talk about um, this this push for statehood for Washington, D.C. Why is there such a concentrated push right now? Well, Pat Buchanan calls it what it is. He says it's an unprecedented power grab. Here are just a few of his thoughts. He says, how many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? That was President Abraham Lincoln who answered his own question. Four, saying that a tail is a leg doesn't make it a leg. And Congress saying that D.C. is a state would equally contradict truth and reality, as our nation's capital lacks all of the attributes of a 51st state of the Union. Whence came our capital of Washington, D.C.? Well, here's some historical background. The city was carved out of Maryland and Virginia in 1790, which voted to cede 100 square miles on the Potomac for a capital city of the United States to become the domicile of the federal government. In 1846, Virginia's share of the land, some 32 square miles, was ceded back. What was left was today's Washington, D.C., of 68 square miles. Now, is that sufficient for a state of the Union? Only if one wishes to change the character and composition of that union, consider. The smallest state for 230 years has been Rhode Island. At 1,214 square miles, it is still 18 times as large as D.C. If D.C. were to become a state, it would be a microstate, smaller than every one of the 24 remaining counties of the state, Maryland, from which it was carved. The Maryland counties that border D.C., Montgomery, and Prince George's are eight times the size of Washington, D.C., and each has a million people, dwarfing the 700,000 residents of D.C. Directly across the Potomac in Virginia is Fairfax County, also eight times as large as D.C. and with hundreds of thousands more people. Supporters of statehood say D.C. has more people than Wyoming. True, but Wyoming is also roughly the size of the United Kingdom and more than a thousand times the size of Washington, D.C. 
Even by the standards of American cities, Washington ranks no higher than 20th in population. Texas with Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Fort Worth, California with Los Angeles, San Jose, San Diego, and San Francisco, both have four cities larger and more populous than our aspiring city-state of D.C. By the terms of its admission into the United States as a state, the Republic of Texas was ceded a right to split into as many as five states of the Union which it was joining. FDR's future vice president, the Texan John Nance Cactus Jack Garner, was all for it. Garner told the New York Times in, 18, in 1921, rather, an area twice as large and rapidly becoming as populous as New England should have at least 10 senators. And the only way we can get them is to make five states. Not five small states, mind you, but five great states. Statehood for little D.C., says Pat Buchanan, could start a trend where megacities like Chicago and New York with five and ten times the size and population of D.C. secede from their respective states and seek full statehood as well. Now, what's at the root of this drive to make D.C. a state? He says the answer can be found in the political character of our capital city. Since the 23rd Amendment was ratified 60 years ago, D.C. residents have voted in 15 presidential elections. In all 15 elections, D.C.'s three electoral votes have gone to the Democratic nominee. Even in the 49-state Nixon and Reagan landslides of 1972 and 1984, D.C. went 4-5 and five to 1 Democratic. In eight presidential elections since 1990, the GOP nominee has failed to win 10% of the D.C. vote. Since the mid-1970s, D.C. has had home rule and in every election since has chosen a Democratic mayor and Democratic city council. How irredeemably de Democratic is D.C.? Well, voter registration statistics in the city as of last November was 403,000 Democrats and 30,000 Republicans. That's a ratio of 13 to 1. Which brings the question, what is D.C.'s grievance that America must somehow rectify by making it a state? He says the answer is, Democrats want D.C. to have two senators to cement their control of the U.S. Senate as they pack the Supreme Court by expanding the number of justices from 9 to 13. And Pat Buchanan says this is a power grab, a national power grab, pure and simple. I have a link to the article in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is one of those other things. Keep an eye on it. May not be able to do much to change it, but we can at least do ourselves justice by understanding it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.